This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Arthur Dole. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you doing? Doing all right. We are at Star Trek 2017. Uh, I just got finished talking about ASP.NET Core, and you're here talking as well. What is what is your talk about, Arthur? Uh, so my talk today, the title is The Saboteur in Your Retrospective, which is a... Uh, clickbaity title, but it's about cognitive bias in the retrospective and how to help combat it. Okay. So that's a very interesting subject. Can't say I've seen that one at a conference before myself. Before we get into that, uh, let's talk a little bit about you. Where do you work and what do you do? Uh, so I work for a company called Aperture. It's A-V-I-T-U-R-E, not Aperture, unfortunately. Um, well, depending on which way you say it, it might be fortunate. But uh I'm a software developer, um, have been for quite a while, but I like to talk about things that are psychological uh, in nature and think about psychology. It's kind of a hobby of mine and how we implement those things, how we take things that we've learned in psychology and apply those to things like development processes and software. So yeah, one of the things I like about our industry is there's people like yourself that have these interesting hobbies besides what we do and uh, we see a lot of people with different backgrounds uh, different hobbies that uh, bring those things into software development come up with some interesting points of view so i'm looking forward to talking to you about what you're uh, what you're talking about here at star trek today uh okay so the talk starts with talking about um what well let's start with this uh there is a great book out there by a guy named Daniel Kahneman, uh, who's a psychologist, uh, and he's also won the behavioral prize, or excuse me, Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, you don't get to do that unless you're a really good psychologist. So he's the guy that started and helped found uh, behavioral economics, which you might have heard of. And behavioral economics is this kind of the same sort of principle where you take the traditional economics says that humans act in rational forms, like they always make the rational decision. And that's not true, like self-evidently. So behavioral economics is a lot more about how do humans actually make decisions. So Kahneman wrote this book called Thinking Fast and Slow that's all about cognitive biases. And he starts talking about this in terms of these things he calls system one and system two. Um, they're not really, you know, regions of the brain, not like your left hemisphere or right hemisphere, but they're notional option or uh things that work inside of your brain agents. And system one is this, this fast thinking brain that operates and it's designed to give you quick answers and easy answers, not just easy, but ones that save you time and energy. And more importantly, glucose, like, which is, you know, it's the fuel that runs your body. So system two, on the other hand, is the stuff that gets us culture and, you know, logic and all the rest of this stuff. It's the slow thinking brain. It's the thing that has helps us go through and do mathematics and logically think out the pros and cons of something. So, yeah, so uh, these are evolutionary traits, right? So yeah. this is like, uh, back in the day, this might've been life or death decision-making versus you know, where am I going to find food later? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Am I going to, you know, I could eat this food now or am I going to find something better later, which is going to be true. I mean, so thinking about it, I like to think about it. System one is essentially this, this group of heuristics that your brain uses to save itself time and energy because that's the stuff that 
is going to, I mean, the brain takes a lot of energy. I, I know that uh, I say in my talk, when I started working as a developer, I came home the first couple of days, I was just exhausted, which made no sense because I'd spent the entire day in a desk chair, right? But I mean, that thinking does use glucose. It uses energy that take your body uses. So um, sorry, I'm snickering a little bit under my breath here because my, my wife is a fitness trainer mm -hmm. and she wonders why I'm exhausted from sitting all day. Exactly. So I'm, I'm going to have to use that next time. And just tell her that's all the sugar gone. I need more sugar. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. That's the, there's the, that's the reason why everybody loves the candy bowl at work. It gets that, that glucose burst. But um, the point is, is that between these two systems, I mean, a bunch of these heuristics evolved and they work really well, say, on the savannas of Africa, but don't work very well when you pick them up and drop them in the middle of the New York Stock Exchange or a development environment. So basically, culture has evolved way faster than the brain has. We just haven't you know, evolutionarily adapted yet to the culture that we tend to find ourselves in. And I mean, given the pace of change, we never will. So evolution is a very slow process where yeah. technology is like you know, these days is just going gangbusters. I mean, it's, it's exponential. Yeah. It's a new JavaScript framework every time you sneeze. So, um, the, I like to think about it in terms of the heuristics that we have, these things that we're working with, um, they are great for everyday life. They're the things that get us through. They're the things that help us work. But system two, this logical stuff has this critical flaw in that it doesn't ever like look at those. It tends to just t accept what system one comes up with um, and just says, oh yeah, okay, rubber stamp, great. And that's this concept called uh, cognitive laziness, basically. It's a system two is cognitively lazy. And so starting to, to flesh these things out, to, to realize that they're happening is kind of the first battle. Um, unfortunately, you can't get rid of them because these cognitive biases just kind of sit around. So a really good example, one of the ones I like to start with is this thing called narrative bias. And narrative bias is this way that humans tend to think about things in terms of stories um, and the way that we tend to look at causality. Like we tend to look at two events and say, okay, well, this thing happened after this thing. So it was caused by, you know, not in a ridiculous sense, but if two things happen close to each other, we tend to assume that they're related. So above and beyond that, we tend to think of people around us as characters in a story, in our story, more importantly, where we're the hero, we tend to cast ourselves as the hero. And that has some interesting side effects to it. For instance, we tend to view people who stop us or who block us or who don't agree with us as enemies. And that casting that mentality that we view them as prevents us from looking at their points clearly it prevents us from trying to find common ground with them and it prevents us from you know actually saying hey you know resolving those differences because we we start off you know with that assumption hey this person's an enemy and casting them like that is is negative I mean, we stick with those first impressions a lot sometimes yeah especially because i mean there's there's a whole host of, of cognitive biases around memory, but yeah, one of them's primacy effect, which is, you know, the first time you encounter something, it tends to be, it tends to stick with you because typically in an environment that, I mean, something where things don't change the first time you see a tree, most of the rest of the trees are going to be like that, for, like that tree. So, but uh, as a kind of side effect from that narrative bias, we have the things like what they call the fundamental attribution error, um, which sounds phenomenally fantastic, but it's, it's, really kind of simple. Basically, we think that other people act the way they do because of inherent traits. 
you know, this person acts this way because they're lazy. This person is smart. This person is creative. On the other hand, we tend to view our own actions through the lens of the circumstances surrounding us. I did this because, well, I had to, because this other thing was forcing me. I didn't, you know, I didn't finish the footnotes for my presentation until last night because I had just had a lot of work to do. But, you know, if somebody else did that, I would look at them and go like, really, you weren't prepared for this? Come on, guy. Right? <laughs> You're lazy. Exactly. And so that mentality is really, it, it's, it's, because we don't see the circumstances surrounding other people, we just see them and their actions. It's this active observer bias as another cognitive bias. So that's a huge one. And there are actually a couple other attribution errors that I talk about. But those kind of things, I mean, you can see start to see where that stuff creeps into a retrospective almost immediately. This narrative of, oh, well, the, you know, the BA for this team just hates me. She always has it out for me. How is that's not productive? I mean, and it's... It, you know, self-evidently so in that case, but that kind of mentality is also not, even if you're not voicing it like that internally, keeping that, you can, you will have that mentality of just like, well, she's going to be looking out for something. She, I mean, even if we both know, yeah, we're kind of on the same team and she cares about the product and the way this goes, she's just going to look for a reason to kind of dump on me. And it's the fundamental attribution error, especially because then well, why is she doing that? We don't think about, you know, what are her circumstances? Maybe she has problems with, you know, her boss or the circumstances surrounding her. So, yeah, I don't know if this fits in the same bucket or not, but I've seen an experiment done where <clears throat> they had somebody go for a job interview and they had that person interview with several people. And the first, uh, the, the actual responses they gave to the, to the interviewer, um, were the same, but they ordered them differently. And some of them were negative uh, mm -hmm. responses. And when they gave those responses first, they were turned down for the job. If they gave the positive responses first, they got the job. But the whole conversation was exactly the same. Yeah. And it, it's that kind of stuff is really interesting. I mean, there's a really other fantastic study that they did with interviewing um, where they took some professional interviewers and had them interview people, you know, interview candidates and then took recorded those and took the recordings and showed them to college students. Like, you know, the psychology undergrad is the great unsung hero of psychology because they're the subject in like 95% of the experiments because you have them in hand. Um, but they showed this to these undergrads and said, okay, can you predict whether or not they were offered the job or not? Or they would have been. And they were like 95% right. And so the psychologists are like, okay, well, we're going to make this harder. So they cut it in half and then showed them just the first half. And they were still like 95% right. And they kept cutting it down to see how, like, what it was. And at the breakoff point where the, the students started to be like, actually fall off worse than the professionals uh, was 10 seconds, which means that within the first 10 seconds of an interview, uh, you have made an impression and you have probably determined whether or not you're going to get hired or not, which is crazy. And this is why people, like, if you, if you read about like Google's policies, they have people interview you and then those people take a whole bunch of notes and then those notes go anonymized to people who are actually making the decision so that there is a level of indirection between those two. Yeah. That's interesting. And, um, you know, are these things that we can kind of turn off or overcome or is it ingrained? Most of this stuff is completely ingrained. Um, awareness is kind of the first 
you know, cornerstone in that battle. And I, I shouldn't really cage it as a battle because if you do think of it as a battle, like as a, I have to fight this, you're going to lose. And not only will you lose, but you'll be exhausted by the end of it. And that's even worse because when you're exhausted, you tend to just accept things from system one even more. So the, I tend to think of it as, is you just have to accept these things and, and, and practice, you know, to get all Zen for a moment or mindful to have that culture of acceptance of yourself and go, okay, these are just things that my brain is going to come at me and, and provide because that's what it was designed to do. And I just have to be aware that they're going to come. And when they do, I can value them and evaluate them in the context of everything else. Just not necessarily accept that first thing. Are there any tools for doing that? Like, um, any practices that agile helps a ton. Um, if you've ever used the lean coffee technique, are you familiar with that one? Not myself, no. Okay. So lean coffee is a technique where you write down on post-it notes or on uh, note cards topics to talk about. Um, and that then the team writes, each individually writes them down and then you vote. The whole, like everybody gets three votes is kind of the traditional. And then you just sort the topics by number of votes, start at the top. And then after every five or 10 minutes, depending on how much time you have, you take a vote of everybody in the room and they do a thumbs up, thumbs sideways or thumbs down as a, I want to keep talking. Hey, I'm, I could keep talking, but I don't care. And we're done talking about this topic. And doing it that way helps mitigate some of the, uh, things I talk about in my talk, like framing or anchoring on particular topics. It also helps uh, people not hide topics that they want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Because if, if somebody comes out and they say, well, I thought this sprint went great and it was amazing and everything is fantastic. Somebody who thought that this actual sprint didn't actually go very well is not going to come out and say, okay, well, I actually didn't agree unless they're, you know, you have a very open and trusting environment, which is another way to do this. So it kind of gets you past like the whole bike shedding thing, right? It helps that as well. Yeah. Which is, I've <laughs> done the lightning talk on bike shedding. That's great. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some techniques we can use. Um, Agile itself is a way to help some of that stuff to help us avoid some of that stuff. It does bring a lot more decisions to play typically in a you know, waterfall environment or something like that is very top down, right? You have these decisions being pushed at you um, and you don't necessarily get to make a lot of the calls. Agile, you know, the development team is, if you're doing agile right, is right up in the business of, you know, making the calls on these business oriented decisions. So in some ways it helps and in some ways it hurts. Um, but there are other things you can do in terms of, um, mindfulness meditation is actually a really good one. And it's something I haven't yet done at work, but I've always been tempted to just start any meeting that I'm running with like just five minutes of meditation, <laughs> um, just to kind of get everybody focused on this. Cause I mean, you get so many meetings where everybody, people are just in other places. And when people are distracted, when people are tired, when people are stressed, that's when they, they, they're more likely to let things from system one, from this intuitive unconscious portion of yourself slide through because they're too busy paying it like their system two is too busy paying attention to something else to notice that the thing from system one isn't right. That response is not right for this situation. So there's a, a lot of this stuff. I mean, Daniel Kahneman, the book is 400 pages, um, but it's the fastest 400 pages I've ever read. If that helps. Um, but it's really fascinating. He goes into a lot of stuff about, he, he spends a lot of the book talking about, well, when can we actually trust this intuition? 
And that's a fantastic subject, like a fascinating one that I like to think about, just when you can actually trust the gut reactions that you have. Um, short answer, it's when you know that it's been trained, when you know that you've experienced the feedback from that decision and you've kind of emotionally inter internalized it. Um, when the, the longer the decision point is from that feedback, the longer that space, the harder it is for you to connect those two and the less likely it is that you've trained it properly. So things like stock, stock broking, is that the, that's not the terms, uh, being a stockbroker there, um, is one of the things where it's the, the, you know, when you realize gain or loss on a stock is so vastly different from when you actually decide to make that purchase that it doesn't train right, which is why you see, you know, companies going to these automated trading services more and more you know, these machine learning style things. So that's another fun topic is to go, okay, well, where are the places where humans aren't going to succeed, where we just have these biases, these heuristics, how can we use things like machine learning, which is first off, how can we use machine learning to help? And then second off, which is almost more fascinating to me is, well, where are the places where our biases are affecting how we set up our machine learning and how we set up these automated systems? Like, because at that level, right? you know, somebody's doing the coding, somebody's setting up the algorithm yeah. and are their biases affecting how they set that up? Or even the results you can imagine, like maybe machine learning comes back with something you don't really want to see or accept. Yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe you don't, you know, your personal beliefs or stance on the subject just conflict with the results. Right. And so it's kind of a, yeah, did you come back with something? Well, are you going to rerun it again with different data? I mean, are you, there's a whole bunch of fun stuff with that as, as software gets into a lot more of this big data stuff, it starts to pull in a lot of things that science has had to develop. Like, um, you know, like almost the peer review process of like focusing on this, um, not looking for, correlation, just looking to see if something is there. And if it is there, then great. If it's not, then that's also a result. You don't just try again. So. Try to strong on the mm -hmm, Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, like confirmation bias is a huge one and I could probably do an entire hour talk just on confirmation bias, but so that's the kind of stuff that I think about it, you know, I do develop on the, I, I almost said I'm a develop on the side. It feels like it sometimes, but no, you know, I develop in my day job. So I try to bring some of this stuff to when we do retros, when we do things, when we talk about stuff and to help the environment that we code in, the culture that we code in, be a place that is a lot more open, that people can, they don't necessarily feel some of the pressures that lead to some of these biases. So now when you, you try to work some of this stuff in at work, do you kind of do it um, where other people don't know you're doing it? Or do you kind of talk a little bit about what you're doing and why first? I try to give them a little bit of the why, because I know I'm always pissed off if somebody's like, let's do this. Weird. Like the first time somebody tried to do like an improv game in a retro, I was like, what are you, why, why are you doing this? I don't know. And they didn't explain because they didn't quite like they hadn't quite done the research to figure it out. But um, just for reference, that does make a lot of difference in terms of your team trusting each other because Improv comedy spent a long time working on, uh, you know, ways to get your team to gel because with improv, you have to be, you know, with each other constantly. So, sorry, slight aside, but um, I, people can tell when you're trying to manipulate them. I mean, as humans, we're smart. We're social animals and we understand that. People will understand if you are trying to do something like that and they will just straight up rebel. So, it'll, it'll work worse than you thought it would.
Okay, so you don't you don't go straight in with the experiment. You kind of say, you know, this is why we're we're yeah. gonna try to do it this way, uh, rather than kind of see what the results are just by kind of tossing it in there. Yeah, I mean, it, it like I said, if you work for you know, I work with a bunch of really smart people, they're gonna figure out I'm doing something. Like they may not know what, but they know something's going on. So they're waiting for the fishing attack or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Uh, so uh, you you get to do your talk this afternoon. Yep. Um, it's been a great event so far. We've seen really good turnout. Uh, yeah. Is there anything in particular you're looking forward to seeing at the event? Um, I just saw one just uh, the talk previously, which was uh, about uh, why your Agile isn't. Um, so that one was a really good talk. I think I've seen the session before. Uh, so you, you get into the, a lot of events and, and you see a lot of people very often. Mm -hmm. That sounds very familiar. I, I bet I know the person that's doing it. Yeah, and I'm, I met Travis before at, uh, um, oh, Lord, where was it? Somewhere last year. All the conferences are, of course, when I want to Probably get... Codemash. That's where everybody meets. I actually <laughs> have not been to Codemash. I haven't been to Codemash. No. That's a, it's a good one. A lot of great events up here in the Columbus, Ohio area. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. There was, you know, several in, you know, between Nashville and Columbus and that kind of... There's a bunch of interesting stuff over in this side of the country from where I come from, which is Omaha. So That's right. You said you're from Omaha. Uh, where can we find you online? Um, so you can find me. My Twitter handle is at Arthur Doler. Um, that's pretty much where I tweet irregularly, but uh, most of my folks, like, if I'm talking at conferences, stuff like that, it'll be there. So, mm -hmm. Blogging anywhere? No, um, not through lack of desire, mostly through lazy. No, not, I'm too busy reading books. I can't blog. No, I really should. Our, our bias is telling us you're lazy. I know. That's true. <laughs> so I really should be, but... No, I've not done that yet. It's very difficult to find time. Um, I write as part of what I do, so uh, my personal blog really gets uh, kind of the short end of the deal. Okay. I guess technically I do have a post coming up on our work blog, on the Avature's blog, um, but which you can get to at Avature, A-V-I-T-U-R-E dot U-S dot com. Um, but even then, it's hard to find time for it. Uh, we'll we'll also get in touch and uh, get some links to the books and stuff that you mentioned and put those in the show notes for people. Okay. Uh, appreciate you giving me some time today at the Star Trek event. It's Absolutely. been a lot of fun, and uh, good luck with your talk today. Thank you very much.